our country's greatest asset is that we have a federalism system where every state gets to choose different policies and figure out what works and what doesn't. That is our that is our country's greatest asset and what makes us a robust country. And and frankly, why you live in one state versus another. And I want to see I want to see people try the Colorado and Oregon. And I would have loved to have seen California move forward with, with decriminalization yeah. because we would have seen something different. And yeah. it is profoundly disappointing that that didn't work. So a diversity of frameworks within a state yeah. model is, yeah. If we're going to do the state thing, right? And I, I fully support the medical too. Like don't, I yeah. I can sit here and talk about the pitfalls of it all day. But the the way, like this is the thing, right? Nobody really knows what the best approach is. They mm-hmm. all have pros, they all have cons. So let's just- So let's try as many as we can. Yeah, Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hagney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with The Trip Report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, a production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, we're speaking with Matt Zorn. Matt is a partner at the law firm Yetter Coleman. His practice is uniquely focused on regulatory law and importantly for this conversation, he's been working on several psychedelic-related cases. I should warn you, we get into the weeds straight out of the gates on this one, as I asked Matt about his experience deposing the Drug Enforcement Agency and what that actually means. This is probably the most technical conversation we've had on the podcast, and so you'll hear me ask Matt to clarify or explain things several times. I would ask that listeners keep in mind while listening to this that the matter of illegality of psychedelics and the punishment mandated by the law was not established through science, public health, or respect for individual liberties, but rather this state of affairs was established to consolidate political power. The Controlled Substances Act, established in 1970, more than 50 years ago, created the DEA and established formidable barriers to revising the government's position on psychedelics and other scheduled substances. Matt, along with a handful of other attorneys working in the field, are holding the DEA's feet to the flame, so to speak, and forcing the agency to clarify its position on several fronts. And in through this process, and this is my analysis, exposing that the emperor, in fact, is wearing no clothes. We discuss one specific area in which Matt and his colleagues are pushing the DEA for clarity, And this is the trial of Ames versus the DEA, where the defendants are seeking clarity on the matter of whether psilocybin is eligible for terminally ill patients through the Right to Try Act. We also dive into cannabis rescheduling, the Freedom of Information Act, how the FDA came to be the other federal agency involved in drug classification schema and the concept of medically accepted use, the legal concept known as the Chevron deference and the differences between state legalization and decriminalization. 
And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Matt Zorn. So what does it mean to depose the DEA? So in normal litigation, sometimes you get what's called a a corporate deposition. So you take the deposition of a a corporation or it's called a 30B6 deposition because obviously a corporation can't answer questions. It doesn't exist. What the corporation designates an individual. And then when that individual gives answers, it binds the corporation. It's like the corporation's position on questions. And you can do that against a government agency too. So I took the deposition of the Department of Justice and DEA, and all of its answers in that deposition are the binding position of those agencies. And this was about what was the matter at hand? It's generally about the Freedom of Information Act. Uh It's about the fact that the United States Drug Enforcement Administration, and for that matter, a lot of federal agencies operate what, with what I contend is unlawful practices of secrecy, which I, I think is important when you're talking more largely about particularly the psychedelic space, which is what we're involved in. You know, pharma has a, they have a line into the DEA, like they can just pick up the phone and, and get them. But psychedelic industry doesn't have that visibility. They don't have those channels of communications with the DEA and frankly, a lot of government. And so um, it's also a matter of the the public. I, I believe that one of the best ways to hold people accountable for making decisions that benefit the public is to let the public know about those mm-hmm. decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, the question that always runs through my mind is, why wouldn't you let the public know this, right? right. And that's the question that I think a lot of folks should be asking, not just about, honestly, federal agencies, but a lot of what anyone's doing in the psychedelic space, right? Like, why aren't you okay with people knowing about this? And if you ask that question, you often can get to an unsatisfying answer. Now, to be clear, sometimes you don't want decision-making to be public for good reasons, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, it's usually not good reasons, so. Yeah. And so was there a particular decision-making that you were interested in that was not being exposed or that the DEA, Department of Justice, was doing? Well, so so it, it started off as actually I was – I'm representing – next week I'm actually arguing – the Ames versus DEA case in the, oh, wow. ninth, the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, so I'm flying to Phoenix next week to argue the case. And we submitted a petition to the DEA to reschedule psilocybin. And I sent it, you know, return receipt requested, like make sure that I know that this is landing on their doorstep. And it did. And the way you send it is you have to mail five copies. Quintuplet is what the regulations say. So you print off five hard copies and you mail it to the DEA. It's totally like... You know, Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1971, and they haven't updated this. So you send five copies. But then what the DA is supposed to do is they're supposed to send you something acknowledging the fact that they received it. And, and we never got that. And, of course, historically, rescheduling petitions take, like, years. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I used the Freedom of Information Act on behalf of Ames to say, like, hey, tell us, show me the records under the Freedom of Information Act that showed you got this. And FOIA... The, that's Freedom of Information Act is FOIA. FOIA actually does have timelines and says you have to respond within this many days. You have to produce the record within a reasonable time yeah. of making the determination. And what happened was is I got this response, which is called an unusual circumstances response. This is this is really in the weeds, but 
basically it's this exception to the timelines which says that if an agency if it raises unusual circumstances and I'll define that in a moment the agency doesn't have to comply with the timelines with the timelines of a FOIA request with the timelines yeah. of a normal FOIA request and and it, it's kind of understandable that the government receives a lot more FOIA requests now and there's so many more records because of emails but when I dug into this, we went back and forth just to sort of skip some of the details. I found out that DEA, the Department of Justice, and practically the entire federal government marks a request as raising it in unusual circumstances if that record is not in the FOIA office. Just pause there for a moment of silence. The FOIA office doesn't keep any of the records you'd ever be interested in. So they're, they are intentionally obfuscating the process of obtaining information by creating a ridiculous scenario that just slows the process down. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's preposterous. And of course, I dug into the law and everything, and I believe that I'm right. And it delays it. So you, you takes a year or two years sometimes to get your information, to even get a determination on whether they're going to give you the information or not, which I use this analogy to describe why this is important with the Freedom of Information Act, which is... You know, I, I, I recently, I've been flying a lot recently, and I recently got airline status, and I can go into the lounge, and yeah, I can baby. use, yeah, no, it, it's like life's, life's dream accomplished. So I've been flying a lot this year, and I got, got airline lounge status, and I go in, and, and the bathrooms are great. I, airport bathrooms are like one of the worst things in the world. But there is a bathroom. You can use it. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not great. And so- when I when I started this discussion about like big pharma or not, I, I'm not against big pharma. Like the fact that they have the revolving door with the agencies and connections with the agencies, I, I think that just is like I'm over the fact of complaining about that. Yeah. What I'm complaining about is not that there's a special lounge for people who who have money or influence or it's the fact that there's this law which says that the public bathroom has to be kept to a certain standard, and they're just letting that. Mm. They're just letting it like. I'm not gonna. I don't need to conjure up imagery, and that—that's my complaint, right? Yeah. It's not that there's a special, better bathroom for everyone else. It's that the government is letting this other bathroom just completely decay into yeah, and and, that, and that's wrong. That's wrong, and so it leaves important information. Right now, I have a lawsuit going against HHS because of the cannabis. I don't know if you've been following the cannabis recommendation that went from HHS to. DEA to reschedule cannabis, which yeah. is which is of course important to the psychedelic space as well. For decades, the DEA has refused to reschedule cannabis on grounds that basically that hadn't been through an FDA clinical trial. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, we're told on uh, I think it's August on August 29th or August 30th at exactly 4:20 p.m. The HHS secretary sends out a, a tweet. This is how this news was delivered from the world, from the United States government, confirming a report earlier in the day that Bloomberg had reported on, which said that they had seen a copy of this letter and that the letter said that cannabis was going to go from schedules one to schedule three. But that's it. None, none of the reasoning of the letter. We have no idea. what. So a Bloomberg reporter saw this. The HHS secretary of this country confirms that a recommendation had been sent from HHS to DEA on Twitter or X, whatever it's called nowadays, at 4.20 p.m., but nobody gets to see the letter. Nobody gets to see the recommendation. Kevin Sabat said that this isn't a serious process, and I, I have my strong differences with the man, but he's totally right. It's not a serious process. 
if the science and the data, and that's what the, this talking point supports rescheduling, like what this this gets back to my point about what, why hide this from the public? Mm-hmm, like what mm-hmm. what is the reasoning for that? What well, I can't think of a good one. Can you? I can't think of a good one, and I'm I I don't have enough exposure into the administration of these kinds of things. What would that process look like if it were administratively sound? Kevin Sabat said it's a joke or or uh, it's not a serious process. Like what what is a serious process? Look well, like? a serious process, frankly, wouldn't even involve them disclosing it to the public at this juncture. See see that this is the interesting thing. If it's an intermediate step, then they didn't need to say anything because the government does all sorts of stuff behind the agencies do all sorts of stuff and and they don't operate under a microscope mm-hmm. and that's fine. But the moment that they took a step into the limelight, right, they don't get to choose to put some things out there and not others. Mm-hmm. And so what that leads you to believe is this wasn't an intermediate decision. It was a final decision by an agency to recommend something. Mm-hmm. And they sent that and they wanted to score political points, perhaps. I don't know. But, I, you know, tying it back to psychedelics, right, why, why is this important? Well, this process that is going on with cannabis is that, you know, MDMA is going to be rescheduled, albeit it's going to be a little different because it's going to get FDA approval. It's going to be a different process. And then there are similar processes that work all like this. And I mean, I do not believe that it should be a process between pharma, the FDA and DEA. I think the public should be involved in it. And that's what I'm fighting for, at least on this front. So we just like went straight into the weeds on this one. I'm I'm a weeds guy. I am too. And I I, want to be mindful of people who are listening to this that may not be. So why don't we go back to Ames versus the DEA? Sure. And like lay out what that is. Yes. So Ames versus the DEA is a lawsuit involving my my client in this case is Dr. Sunil Agarwal and Ames is the clinic that he works at. He's a medical doctor and he's obviously familiar with the research regarding psilocybin. And he runs a clinic where he treats end-of-life mm-hmm. cancer in particular. And he has patients that would like to use psilocybin for anxiety towards the end of life. Mm-hmm. Pretty straightforward, except that psilocybin is a Schedule One controlled substance. And so according to existing medical paradigms and common wisdom and interpretations and so on, that can't happen. The only way that that could happen is through an expanded access protocol. And our claim is that the right to try, which was a law that was enacted by Congress, by bipartisan, by pretty healthy margins, and Mm -hmm. by nearly every state in the country, Mm -hmm. says that you don't have to go through the FDA expanded access process if you are an eligible patient which is defined as someone who is towards the end of their life or has life-threatening illness, and it is an eligible investigational drug, so a drug that's being moved through the clinical trial Mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. Psilocybin qualifies for that, and it has breakthrough therapy designation and so on and so forth. And so we started off by asking DEA for an exemption. Let us use the Schedule One drug with this terminally ill patient. And the DEA said no in a very indirect way uh, saying that we, we don't have the authority to do this. Mm. It, was, it actually wasn't a no. It wasn't, people are always conflict avoidant, but it's honestly, you know, if, if you know the answer is no, just say the answer is no. Don't try to play mm-hmm. any games with it. But they said, we don't have the authority to do this. They just, they wouldn't say no to the request. 
And so it, we took that up to the Ninth Circuit. We took a, a direct appeal from the agency to the Ninth Circuit, which is how this would work if you wanted to take a judicial review. And we argued that case and, and we tried, but we, we lost on a what's called jurisdictional point. The court basically said, like, this was premature. You didn't actually get a final decision out of the agency. Mm. It was because of the way... Because the way they worded that. Yeah, the yeah. way they worded that and then sort of the mechanics of the correspondence of, like, sending an email and, and letter back mm-hmm. and so on. So then we went back and we said, you know what, we're going to actually set up in a petition for the DEA, which is going to elicit a denial out of the DEA. And then separate from that, we're going to also petition to reschedule. And the reason we did that was, in part, the DEA had said in its brief in the court during the first litigation that, well, if petitioners being us really believe that this should be available for medical use. Why, why don't they submit a rescheduling petition? That, that's me paraphrasing. That's not actually what they said, what DA said. But And so we did, building in part on an argument that I wrote on my one of, one of my earlier articles that I wrote on, on, on drugs, the newsletter on drugs.substack.com. There, there's my pitch. But, but it was a part, uh, an earlier uh, essay I had written in response to something Dr. Mason Marks had written, um, and there was an argument there as to why psilocybin should be in Schedule 2. And I, we kind of took that argument, developed it a little bit, and submitted that petition. And usually these these petitions take sort of a while to get responses out of, but we got a denial, straight-up denial out of the DEA, an unequivocal, like, this is denied, and so we were taking that up to the Ninth Circuit, and then we got a denial on our other petition for an exemption. So we're taking we we took that up too. So we have two cases pending. One of them is sort of put on ice. This one is the one that's going forward, and that's what we're arguing next week. And it raises a ton of interesting questions relevant to psychedelics, just beyond the facts of the case itself. So it's a really interesting case, and I'm sort of happy to be working with Catherine Tucker, Shane Pennington, and the Perkins Cooey team, a bunch of fantastic lawyers there, uh, starting with James Williams, Andrew Klein, Tommy Tobin, and Holly Fernandez, and uh, Caleb. Oh, I'm sorry, Caleb. I forgot Caleb's last name, but yeah. So you mentioned there's a number of interesting things that could come out of this that are relevant for psychedelics. What what could those be from a... How do you mean? Yeah, I mean, so, gosh, to, to go into the history, the time vault here, my interest in this space, in part, was fueled by a drugs law and policy class. I took at Columbia Law School in 2010 or 2011, and I got really interested in a couple cases in legal proceedings surrounding MDMA. Mm-hmm. This is arguably the genesis of the certainly it's certainly the genesis of maps. And let's be clear, like indigenous practice has been going on for millennia. There was obviously a lot of research going on in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And then so on and so forth. But if you're looking for the sort of the the medicalization yeah. of psychedelics, like this is actually the very sort of starting point of it all. And I got super interested in the MDMA proceedings in the eighty four to eighty seven and the legal precedents that were created around it. And the core dispute of what had happened was so DEA went to put MDMA on Schedule One because it became a club yeah. drug. That's- but it had been. Been, it was being used in like a therapeutic context, right? Precisely. Yeah. And so to put MDMA on Schedule 1, the DEA had to come to the conclusion that MDMA had no currently accepted medical use. 
And so there is this kind of, I wouldn't necessarily call it, well, it was underground, but yeah. you know, at the time, MDMA wasn't, wasn't Ill- illegal. It wasn't really illegal, but it also wasn't approved by the FDA. But therapists were using MDMA in in therapy successfully, very successfully. There's a lot, you know, there are books of people sort of writing about their experiences and overcoming PTSD from from rape is is one example, or you know, PTSD from anything. Couples therapy is yeah. probably what I would say is one of the the strongest. And so I got interested in this, and I dug into the law, and I, I was convinced that there was something wrong that happened here. And the pro-MDMA position was that this was accepted medical use. And effectively, the DEA took the position was it's not FDA approved. And so that, that was your dichotomy. And there was really, wasn't really a, a middle ground. It was like, are the doctors, in fact, doing this in medicine? That was the MDMA position. Don't put this on Schedule 1. I think they were pushing for Schedule 3. And DEA was saying FDA approved. DEA's position obviously wins. And it goes up to the First Circuit. Court of Appeals in a case called Grinspoon versus DEA and Lester Grinspoon, mm. and Grinspoon wins. The Court of Appeals said that the DEA had it, had it wrong. They couldn't rely on FDA approval to establish no currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and they send the case back down. And then what the DEA does is they reformulate that and create this like eight-part test for it, which was ripped out of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and they just listed the factors. And MAPS doesn't exist at this time, but but Lester Grinspoon doesn't take an appeal here. In other words, there was no challenge to that mm-hmm. following it. Instead, and this is kind of, you know, Rick Doblin, who played a major part of those hearings and challenging it all, goes off and forms, I believe it's called what, Earth Metabolic Design Labs? Is it was the group that was he was he had organized, but that become that becomes MAPS. And that's that is the genesis of MAPS. And Rick Doblin's thesis that he write he goes into Harvard Kennedy School of Government, writes a thesis about, you know, the way to bring all psychedelic medicine through the FDA clinical trial process. And the world was never the same. But then what happens is there's going on at the very same time as this MDMA as that sort of from a judicial standpoint, it's going on in cannabis. So the same standard, see that that's the thing. These these are legal standards that apply to the Controlled Substances Act. It's not just about psychedelics and it, and it kind of leaks over mm-hmm. into cannabis. And this is in a petition normal brought to reschedule cannabis. That same standard is applied to cannabis and those petitions to reschedule are, are refused. And there's a little bit more legal fighting that goes on. But what ends up happening is, and this is kind of, if you tie it to the, administrative state, administrative law writ large is there's a case called Chevron versus it's this it's it is one of the biggest cases in in Supreme Court history. It's the most cited case, I believe, in administrative law. It's a 1984 case. And effectively it, it creates a doctrine called Chevron deference. And I, we don't need to get into the super weeds of it, but it it's it's a doctrine which says that when a statute is ambiguous, when a law isn't quite precise, courts will defer to the agency's interpretation of the statute. And this is one of the most, it's a hotbed political issue, a hotbed Mm -hmm. jurisprudential issue. And there's a case right now up at the Supreme Court over whether Chevron should be overturned. Mm. And most people think that that that's going to happen. It's a case called Loper. Wait, so if I understand correctly, Chevron deference is if a law is 
if the interpretation of a law is ambiguous, then it defers to the agency's interpretation of the law? As long as the agency's interpretation is a reasonable one. Yes, that's effectively the Chevron doctrine. That sounds like so – the term – is it nefarious or like – Sus. Sounds sus. Oh, I, I mean, look, personally right? – Like I, I'm trying to like see if I understand it. I don't think I quite do, but it's basically like, okay, if there's a dispute between – the DEA and you know somebody who's bringing a, a case against it and it's and it's muddy, then the interpretation of the DEA is what the the law is how it's is what the Chevron deference implies. Bingo, and it's not just the DEA; it's every federal agency in the entire United States government. So there's that a, seems like it has like such far-reaching consequences. It it does, and and I think I think a really important point to understand regarding this is. So who in the United States do you think is against Chevron deference? Like if you had to identify a population that is against this, who would it be? It's conservatives. I mean, the campaign to get rid of this, is it, it takes away liberty, right? You're literally giving power in the hands, especially when you're talking about law enforcement agencies. Yeah. Like you're giving them the power to interpret ambiguities in the law in their favor. And yeah. no federal agency interprets the law in a way that that gives them less power, sure, right? Sure, like sure. that's just, you know. Yeah. So so anyway, the way that Chevron factors into this is there's a five-part test that's used to interpret what accepted medical use means. It's not just safety and efficacy. Those are two parts of it. But it's like safety, efficacy, whether the chemistry is reproducible – Basically, you have to get FDA approval to get an accepted mm. medical use. Mm -hmm. And you know, we could talk on end about the, the total consequences of this. It's very realizable in cannabis, yeah. right? Where you have like almost every state has a medicinal cannabis program, but it doesn't have a currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States because it hasn't gone through the FDA rigmarole. Right. And you know, the FDA, what the FDA is responsible for doing is assessing whether a medicine is is safe for interstate marketing, right? Right. But and, and this is kind of key to the Ames DA case. Our point is the FDA standard is one, not accepted medical use with severe restrictions. That's what our position in the lawsuit is. And two, those two shouldn't be the same. And three, when you look at the facts of this case, that illustrates the point. The standards we use for whether a medicine is safe to introduce into interstate marketing shouldn't be the same as the standard that dying patients need because the risks are, are just risk complete. Profile is completely different. It's completely yeah. different. And everyone agrees with this, including the FDA. This this is the thing. Like that that's the whole point of right to right try, to try, right? Yeah. Like you have a right to try if, if no other medicine can meet your situation. And, and so you said that this is now heading to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Is that the... Yes. Right? And, and, so, and it'll be live streamed. And when is that? This week coming up? Yeah, it's coming out next Friday. And and what do you expect the outcome of that to be? I mean, the DA could win. The petition could be dismissed. And then there's kind of a, there's a spectrum of options. I'll, I'll just kind of say what we're asking for, which is we are asking the court to direct DEA to send the petition over to HHS for a medical and scientific evaluation mm -hmm. to basically take the next step in the process, as opposed to what DEA, in fact, did, which was they cut off the process. But they just said, yeah, no, right, we're not right. going to entertain this. 
you know, as, as, as part of our petition, what we relied upon was in 1980, it, it's kind of an obscure, it's obscure in one sense, but completely on point in another, which is a 1982 statement that the FDA, HHS made with respect to THC. And they inter- they said currently accepted medical use with severe restrictions could apply to THC because in 1982, because THC was eligible for an expanded access type program. And that that's kind of our position is, look, psilocybin is far enough in the development process where we should move this to schedule two and we should allow people to access this towards the end of their life. Mm-hmm. As, as a policy matter, I have no idea why this would ever be controversial. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's almost inhumane as a policy matter. As a legal matter, I mean, I think we've pretty much laid it out, but federal agencies are just, they're conservative. They're conservative in the sense of that they don't like disturbing the status quo. Yeah, yeah. And so to do that, sometimes you have to go to court and shake it up a little bit. So why is this Chevron deference up for overturning or how would you frame that or? Well, so what the agency did in response to our case was they took this five-part test that they've been using with cannabis and they said, well, you know, psilocybin doesn't meet this five-part test, I, so, you know, go home. That, that's why they denied the petition. Where the, she- the Chevron sort of factors into all of this is that five-part test, it wasn't directly reviewed by the D.C. Circuit, but effectively what the D.C. Circuit said in 1991 was the DEA gets – Chevron deference mm-hmm. with respect to what it means to have an accepted medical it, use. There's a case that comes on later called Gonzalez versus Oregon, where the Supreme Court stepped in and said, not so fast, the DEA doesn't regulate the practice of medicine, which sounds self-evident to, you know, to yeah. us because the FDA doesn't regulate the practice right, of medicine. Right, Why would right. the DEA? But when you determine what it means to have a currently accepted medical use, you are regulating the practice of medicine in yeah. part. So this can dovetail ultimately into a number of things, including these state-level initiatives to have psilocybin therapy, because maybe at some point you argue that that's an accepted medical use. It wouldn't be under the current paradigm because people are doing FDA clinical trials with synthetic psilocybin, but not so much with the mushrooms. In the areas that you're sort of super focused on, what does the future look like in two, five, ten years? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic. I, I kind of started writing about this to, when, when the whole patent issue sort of blew up. I kind of was writing with the suggestion of, hey, like this is, it was always going this way. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of debate between like maps versus compass or whatever. And people saying compass is an evil actor. Like they, you could do it like maps. Um, I, I don't, I don't think anyone's saying that anymore because, you know, MAPS PBC has kind of evolved from where it was. And I think it's going to continue going that direction to some extent. And I think where the focus needs to be is making sure, and this is what I do a lot, is that the people on, on an individual level can maintain the flexibility to be able to have the freedom to use these medicines in ways that sort of gets the most out of them. The system is is a poor one. It is a poor system. The system being the the mental health system, yeah. the medical. And I think a lot of people think that bringing MDMA over the finish line is going to change the medical mm-hmm. system, and it's not. 
if anything, it, it helps reinforce it. I mean, to some extent, it's a loss of hope, right? A lot of people thought it was going to, and now it's pretty evident it's not going to. Wait, it's not going to what? Revolutionize the oh. mental health mm-hmm. care. It doesn't mean that, that mental health care isn't going to be revolutionized. Like, it might be. And that, that's, this is the optimistic point. There are a lot of people working on a lot of other projects. But what's not going to be the revolutionary sort of engine is it's not just going to be the approval of MDMA, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's going to be how people use that in therapy, potentially off-label. So I don't know where we are sort of in, in two, three, ten years, but key decisions about the approval of MDMA and whether or not people are going to have the latitude to do that, that's going to be an important decision point. And to some extent, this is why I'm pushing transparency, which is we can go the pharma route. It's not transparent. And I don't think the pharma route, pharma does some good things. Like, let's not completely throw pharma out the window. Why don't we actually try to take the best practices of pharma? But like, what I've always liked about this work and the people I meet is there always is a sense of community. And what I'm starting to fear and what I'm starting to see is, and and it's really everyone on all sides, is everyone's creating their own little insular communities, doing their own projects, and we don't really know what's going on. And and frankly, it's a lot of people trying to control a lot of stuff. I mean, I was profoundly disappointed when I saw the decrim initiative fail in California. Were you surprised? No. I wasn't that the governor vetoed it, but I thought that was an incredible accomplishment just to get it out of California Mm -hmm. because my hope, consistent with what I've said, is I'm not against – I've written suggesting I'm against Oregon and Colorado. That's not a precise statement of my position. I would like to see a diversity in approaches. And I would like to see people trying different things. And the idea that one approach is going to work here – honestly is to me is extremely dangerous mm-hmm. because it's 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 like the too big to fail One approach idea. meaning the medical route of access well i was talking about the state the state level the state level decrim the state level legalization which if it, it see this is the interesting thing it's interesting that you use the word medical there because if the state level approach stayed out of the medical lane yeah and we had the medical and the, then then I would be more optimistic. Does what, it stay out of the medical lane by not pretending to be a medical thing? Yes. And so you mean by more of a cannabis sort of oriented retail model? Or or even just yeah, or just wellness, right? Like let this isn't this isn't medicine. We're not doing medicine. We're not we're not is trying to Is that in to, the language that is being used or is that in the way it's like it's being created at the cuz I mean I hear I hear uh adult supported healing center and like i mean my my bias uh, oh that's wellness like i maybe i'm just too close to it to understand that and and i think the differentiation between wellness and medical there's an area where it can kind of bleed in and and unless we're talking about clearly fda approved right like uh, that kind of thing but so i'm sorry yeah yeah. tell tell me what you mean by what's being conflated in like the oregon and the colorado models well well, first of all words are important so healing great like healing there's all types of healings right there's spiritual healing Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of healing i'm healing is not the word i'm taking therapy now we're moving a little bit closer yeah when you start actively pitching this as healing depression when you're starting to talk in when you're using terms of diagnosis yeah and so again like if that approach were 
truly independent of the medical and not trying to ape it and be a substitute for it, I would be, you know, but, but that's not what I see. Like, I believe there should be a wellness. Yeah. And, and, but, and you can do that in a number of different ways, but even among that approach, I would love to see a diversity. I wouldn't, I don't want to see each state copying each other because Mm -hmm. you create like a too big to fail dynamic. I mean, Mm -hmm, our, mm -hmm. our country's greatest asset is that we have a federalism system where every state gets to choose different policies and figure out what works and what doesn't. That is our that is our country's greatest asset and what makes us a robust country. And and frankly, why you live in one state versus another. And I want to see I want to see people try the Colorado and Oregon and I would have loved to have seen California move forward with, with decriminalization yeah. because we would have seen something different and yeah. it is profoundly disappointing that that didn't work. So a diversity of frameworks within a state yeah. model is, yeah. If we're going to do the state thing, right? And I, I fully support the medical too. Like don't, I yeah. I can sit here and talk about the pitfalls of it all day, but the, the way, like this is the thing, right? Nobody really knows what the best approach is. They mm-hmm. all have pros, they all have cons. So let's just- So let's try as many as we can. Yeah. So, you reason. know, there's actually an interesting model that, main cannabis i don't know when it was implemented but they created a system whereby you're allowed to grow cannabis plants in your home this is maybe in 2010 or something like that but they also created what they call like a caregiver sort of role which is somebody who has a license to grow more than the personal allotment and and then can provide for people who so like it's an individual. It was not a retail thing. It was almost like co- like a cottage baking license, you know, where you have a license to, to cook food in your home and then sell it to your neighbors or what have you. Right. I thought that was like so brilliant. Like I, I, I thought that was like such a unique model and it actually, I thought it was perfect for, for psilocybin as well, right? Like somebody who's that would be great. growing it and educating and, and it's a one-to-one human contact person that like, it's not necessarily their sitter, but can provide education and resources and a harm reduction. So, um, and, and it's a great idea, and, and it would be great to see, maybe it'll be Maine again, for all we know. I mean, you know, that's, that's the thing. And, and the idea behind that also implicitly is like that exists outside of the sort of facilitator license, you know, and, and it could potentially introduce affordability, right? Like that's the main problem with what we're seeing now at the state is it's just not it's, affordable. It's, uh, yeah. And so- what is a way? Is that because of the the infrastructure, the facility, the healing center, the location, the manufacturing, the licenses that needs to be for all of those different things? Yeah, I mean, the closer you get to an FDA model, or the closer you get to the medical model, like the medical model is a lot of overhead. That's in part why things are expensive. Is there a true trade off between safety and? Yeah, I mean, my personal view here is that the dangers of psilocybin are probably being overblown. Yeah, I mean. Amsterdam, you can buy like, and I understand there are cultural differences between the U.S. and Amsterdam, but like they've also done scientifically, like it's not. And and look, high dose THC, and nobody's ever answered this question for me because I this is one of my favorites. And if someone can email me the answer, I would love it. But why is psilocybin any different from high dose THC? And if we allow people to sell high dose THC over the counter, why are we so afraid of psilocybin? I mean, if someone can answer that, like high-dose THC, you can buy really high-dose THC products. Like, why is that different from from like the truffles or mm-hmm. whatever? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can't answer that, then what are we afraid of? I mean, you can go to any of these states. 
I think it's also worth talking about, like, I begin here. Why is the system in Colorado that's going to regulate psilocybin more more restrictive than the decriminalization of ibogaine, right? Or like, why would it even, even if ibogaine comes in and gets the same treatment as psilocybin, just the fact that psilocybin and ibogaine would be treated the same when their safety profiles are so vastly mm-hmm. different, to me, there's like an immediate red well, flag there. Like, you, it's not logically consistent. It's it's not logically consistent. And just to build on that, like, I I understand the appeal of plant medicine but they're not all like the, yeah. the, the category, yeah. but they're really not all the same. Right. Right. And, and they're not all the same among other things. Cause you talk to the people who have been using these medicines with people and they'll tell you they're not the same. Right. Yeah. And so the, you're creating these like, reg, you know, regulatory frameworks and whatnot. And, and Ibogaine is the classic example of something that is why it's being bunched in with all these other plant medicines is just, and, and look, I've got a lot of good things to say about Ibogaine, but, it should not be in any regu- I don't I do not believe it belongs in these regulatory structures because period. of the risk profile not just the risk profile but how you would use it i mean how like if you're talking about the use that people do in ibogaine clinics like that is so profoundly unlike anything mm-hmm. anything like why is this even in the same conversation in yeah. my view and the only answer to that is well it's a plant and it and it's Psychoactive. Well, it's sociological and political too. I think. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's like it makes sense to expand access to ibogaine in the same conversation because people have the same feeling about it, but it doesn't necessarily fit to regulate it and research it the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And and it there's there's an advantage to bringing ibogaine into the conversation, but that's because a lot of this has become political. So we need like a state level framework hackathon. You know, where people come together and like just get weird and come up with the different ideas. As a community. It's actually not a bad idea. Like as a community, we all should be participating in this process and at least be humble enough to know that, that none of us have the answer. The only thing I would ask people to consider is just that this is, and look, I consider myself to be a pretty smart guy, but I don't even think I have. Like I, I don't. It's it's such a complex problem. Yeah. And, and there are pros and cons no matter what solution you yeah. pick, which is why people in their local communities, to the extent they want one of these, they should be able to. Like this would be great to have a hack. Like you know, some off the shelf options. If you want to do this, like take this one. You want to do this one, you take this one. And and truly brief of like yeah, like model acts. Like people do this all the time as they create model acts for legislatures to pass or to start mm-hmm. off with. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a boilerplate like. Mm-hmm start with this and you have that with like the uniform trade secrets act or the, like we need like a uniform plant medicine acts like plural that you know a few different ones right yeah, because yeah i mean i can tell you there's a good argument to be made that decrim is actually safer than the than the regulated psilocybin access i can summarize it in a nutshell please do so you see this in the california cannabis market because the regulations have become so onerous folks actually go to the illicit market for their product, right? Mm-hmm, More mm-hmm. than the illicit market. And so- we call this regulatory leakage. Regulatory leakage. And so if you're creating this hyper-regulated psilocybin and there's higher regulatory leakage, that could actually turn out to be, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, that could be worse than a less regu- Like, in other words, as regulations increase, you 
you push people into a completely unregulated right. domain. And is that what we want? And has anyone sort of sat down and like thought about that? In other words, more, 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 more regulations, there's a, a, a point in which more is not better. Yeah. I think I, I would even get on board with if some regulation is good, right? Some regulation is good. But the question of how much, I think, is what we should be asking. Is that regulation at the interface between provider or sitter or guide and the individual? Or is that at the manufacturing, the cultivation layer? Where do you put? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I had to sit here today. I mean, like light levels of regulation, potentially. it, it And there are different ways you can regulate. I mean, you can increase tort liability for, you know, things that, that go wrong, which doesn't actually have as much overhead. It just increases your liability you know i think perhaps like yeah on the product that people are selling and and maybe like a food inspection i mean the other thing is how do you tap into existing models or whatever i mean mushrooms at the end of the day are they grow in the ground right i mean lots of things too so yeah i mean i guess consider like licensing requirements yeah i mean it's all it's all a trade-off and and the more you the more regulations you stack on top of each other, the the harder it is to create a legitimate business that people can get their products from. Yeah, and you know it, it's it's like imagine a world right where so I'm fine with luxury products. I'm fine with the fact that some people are charging thousands of dollars for these sessions. Just like I'm fine with the fact that Chanel charges thousands of dollars for its handbags. But imagine a world where there was no other purse other than a Chanel purse, and the only purse you could get was a Chanel purse. Mm-hmm. What would start happening? People would be buying purses off of, you know, down the street here and or yeah. whatever off the street, right? Yeah. And so it's it's fine to have a world of luxury goods as long as there's another world where if this is a sufficiently desired product, people can get a, a decent product outside of those ch- channels. Otherwise, people are going to be a listen market. Mm-hmm. So- these are deep questions, and it, they're worth talking about as a community with each other and what the values are, and we'll have our differences or whatnot, but as far as I can tell, the conversation's not really being had. So. Yeah. Debate forum. Hackathon. The trip report, debate, and hackathon. I'm, I'm happy to come and debate, yeah, debate or hackathon or whatnot. I mean, there, there are many ways one, people could be doing this. But. Cool. Ondrugs.substack.com. That is the newsletter, and yeah. Thank you, Zach. So we'll send people to that as your main vehicle of... (laughs) Self-promotion. Idea propagation. Idea propagation, yeah. Or or if you want to get an an extended written version of this. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company, with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.